0: I cannot tell you how excited I am uh, to have Patrick Riki and his family with us this morning. Uh, Patrick and Kristen and their children uh, have been a great source of uh, joy and encouragement uh, for Audrey and I for many, many years. Um, Patrick and my friendship uh, began in the fall of 1996, and I know that for some of you, you're like, holy cow, I don't even know what that looked like. Some of you are like, oh, you're just young men. Uh, but for us, it's a story of, what, 23 years of, of friendship. Uh, one of the things that I've always been impressed with, with Patrick, we our friendship began at Johnson Bible College, now Johnson University, uh, studying together for ministry. Um, one of my closest friends in high school is Patrick's wife, Kristen, and uh, that helped, I think, seal our friendship uh, over the years. Patrick always has had a knack for thinking deeply Uh, when some of us, um, perhaps me, maybe not, uh, were a little uh, immature in the dorm and running around doing things that should not be told to this church. Um, Patrick was always a measured voice. He spoke with wisdom, I think, beyond his years, and he may think that I'm, I'm, I'm... uh, You're
1: overselling it putting a Putting too bit, much I think, praise. Yeah. But <laughs> seriously, uh,
0: he, he has been a, a, someone I've looked to and I've seen wisdom and uh, he's thought deeply about life and he's always had the special gift of making it relatable. The hardest, uh, most compelling truths about God and life in this world with him, he's able to relate in, 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 in such just personal ways. And Patrick has served as a youth minister, as a preacher. He and his wife planted a church, and now he serves directing uh, chaplains for Parkview Health in the Fort Wayne area. And I am delighted uh, to introduce to you Patrick Rieke. Would you please welcome him warmly? Thank you.
1: pretty easy to mutually agree we would tell no stories about our college days. Um, it was Bible college, but that doesn't mean that everything that happened there is for public consumption, for sure. So uh, um, that's, a, that's a good agreement. Uh, many of you know, Craig and Audrey have been away um, on a family retreat um, recently. How many of you know that's a good thing for the church? It's a good thing for the family. It's also a good thing for you, for your leaders, um, whether it's your senior minister, or your other staff, your elders and deacons who serve with all their hearts. It's good for them to get away. I heard it said recently, sometimes you've got to go away, so you want to come back. And that that's a good thing, right, to be able to unplug a little bit. Um, being in ministry is a long and difficult thing to do, and so to have some time to step away and to be refreshed and um, to have some fun um, and refreshment and then come back to the work uh, you have a senior minister who um, I've been able to watch through many years now, as he indicated, and you, um, you're following a leader who is a leader of integrity, and having met some of your other staff um, over the past few months and today, uh, you're, you're fortunate. You're a fortunate congregation to have people who care about you, um, who care about the Word, care about God, who take seriously their relationship with Him and not just, you know, the next program or the next thing that's happening. Um, they take take seriously their, their ministry, and not just not the program's side of the ministry, but um, the ministry side of the ministry, life on life with you. So, um, so you're, you are fortunate, and I'm thankful for them and for you that they've been able to get away. So how many of you know Jesus was okay talking about death? If you don't, the next time you read through the Gospels, pay attention. Jesus was pretty comfortable talking about difficult things. Jesus talked about his own death regularly. When he talked about his death, how did people reply? Don't talk like that. Don't talk like that. Well, today we're going to talk like that a little bit. We're going to talk like Jesus. We're going to talk about death. We're going to talk about um, being at that point and talk about grief a little bit. Um, There's very few of you in this room who have not been touched um, in one way or another by death and by grief. And so we're going to acknowledge that today today. Um, I'm going to ask you to do something very difficult later, and then I'm going to invite you to do something that we can all do at the end. You've known Bethany for quite some time. You can remember when she was a young lady and when she accepted the gospel and came to faith in Christ in your church. Bethany uh, grew up and went away to college, and she met Brad, and they fell in love, and shortly thereafter, they were married. Started their family, and now they have three wonderful children. Haley is the oldest, she's 12, Micah is a boy, is five years old, and recently Emma, the baby, was born. It was during Bethany's pregnancy with Emma um, that there was some concerning findings, not about Emma's health, but about Bethany's. Um, and after Emma was born, there were some more, some more tests that were performed, and then your phone rang. And some of you know that feeling when that phone rings, and you've had some of those phone calls that are not phone calls you want to receive, and you know just about everything in somebody's life and maybe in many people's lives are about to change. When your phone rang, it wasn't Bethany, but it was her dad, and he had news from what the findings had come back with. And he says this to you My daughter, the mother of my grandchildren, has cancer. It's serious, it's advanced. And he says to you, what any of you would say in that situation, please pray. We need a miracle. We need God to heal Bethany. We need the treatments that she's going to experience to work and be effective so that she can recover and be with us for a long time to come. When I was a 26-year-old youth minister, I was on a staff of a church about the size of Lebanon and um, we each took our hospital day to go and visit people at the hospital. And I have to be honest with you, and, 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 and I hope this is a safe place to make this confession, I hated going to the hospital. I did not look forward to it. I put it off as long as I could. Um, I didn't, I, I'd love to tell you as a guy that they brought in to speak on caring for people in the hospital that I've just always loved so much to go to the hospital and visit people. It's just not true. And I wasn't good at it, and I wasn't comfortable with it. So when I was 26 years old and working with teens, the hospital was not my primary place. The high school was my primary place, not the hospital. And yet, I was on staff, and I had my day, and I was supposed to go. And so um, when I was 26 years old, at one point in time, I was sitting in a hospital room across from an elderly woman from our church that I did not know previous to this. All I knew about her walking in was that her name was Gladys and that she had broken her hip. And at 26 years old, I was thinking, broken hip doesn't sound that bad, right? I've broken bones before. I've got, I broke my hand one time. You know, I've seen people with broken legs. It doesn't seem that serious. I'll go make a quick visit. I'll get to the coffee cart downstairs on the way out, get something frozen. I'll be on my way. You know, it'll be, it'll be just fine. And for those of you who've ever known someone or if you yourself have ever broken a hip, you know, it's not quite like breaking your hand. It's something much more significant. And so as I went in and I sat down and Gladys was alone in the room and I sat down in the chair next to her, I could see that Gladys had tears streaming down her face. And so I I tried to make some conversation as best I could in a room where I was uncomfortable and obviously she was in a huge amount of pain and suffering. And so finally, the only thing I could think of to say because I was in my own discomfort was, you know, Gladys, how can I pray for you? And um, through her tears, she said this phrase to me, a phrase that I wasn't ready to hear, that I wasn't prepared for her to say. I thought, going into this again, this is not a major deal. She's just broken her hip, right? And she says to me, Sonny, just pray that I go be with Jesus. I thought, there's no way I'm going to pray that you go be with Jesus. How how do I go back to the office at 26 years old and say, well, glass is all taken care of. (laughs) I prayed and... There she went, you know, that's, uh, that's probably not what I'm here for, probably not the best use of my time today. Um, it, it, it stuck with me for some time after that. I realized that the tools I had in my toolbox of conversation with people in the hospital were not effective that day with Gladys. And I realized that the conversations that happen at that point in time when somebody's at that phase or that stage of their life, is, it's a different conversation than it is the rest of the time. So let me ask for those of you who actually can remember 20 years ago. I know some of you in the room, you know, can't remember 20 years ago because you didn't exist yet or you were very young. Uh, but for those of us who can remember ourselves 20 years ago, is, does your spiritual life look exactly the same now as it did 20 years ago? Like this for yes, like this for no. Okay. I don't see any yeses. mostly no's. Um, and so that we could talk for a long time about how our, our, our outlook on everything on God, the universe, the world, how we relate with people, our look on Jesus, you know, those, how those things have changed. But what I want you to think about for just a moment is why has, has your spiritual life changed? Why have your views about the world, your views about yourself, your views about God, why have they changed? And if we were to take a poll, I'm guessing that at or near the top, the primary reason that your views have changed is because of hard things that you've experienced. A loved one who died. A sickness that you experienced. A marriage that dissolved. A dream that dried up. We go through difficult times, and our spiritual life changes. So we want to talk a little bit about three phases. This will be an oversimplification, but it will be something that will help us as we think about helping people who are close to the end of their life. So phase one, this is usually where our journey begins. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Who grew up on VeggieTales? Okay. Okay. Fewer here, we had a lot of people in the last service who grew up on VeggieTales, so we can have, we're going to have a support group for you if you're mourning the loss of VeggieTales in your life. You know that that's not a big thing anymore um, later, but this is something our kids grew up on. They grew up on hearing this message from Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber, right? And any good um, children's program is going to communicate this message. This is a message we want to communicate to people who are new to the faith. Greg's already communicated it today, today. People who are new to the faith, And our children, we especially want to communicate this message to um, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's conventional wisdom. It's the the thing that we teach regularly. And we hold on to this even when things get difficult, right? So I'm going to talk about phase one, two, and three, but phase one doesn't ever actually end. It doesn't ever stop being true that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This is true. The scripture teaches us and we believe it. So the theme verse here, if anyone's ever given a Christian graduation card to somebody, they all include this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord's plans to prosper you and to give you hope and a future. Um, this is the theme verse of phase one. And it is the story that Bethany accepted when she was a young girl. God loves me and has wonderful plans for my life, after the dawn of our spiritual lives, and sometimes at the same time as the dawn of our spiritual lives, we begin to, to encounter some problems. Right? Anybody not encountered problems yet so far in life? Okay, we've all we all agree we've all encountered problems. Um, and then the theme shifts from God's plans for us and God's love for us. It shifts just a little bit to God's love and His help for us. We're going through difficult times, and God is helping us to get through those difficult times. I used to tell teenagers when I was in youth ministry, if you haven't experienced anything really difficult yet, just keep breathing. At some point in time, you will experience something that's very difficult. You may experience it when you're very young. If you don't, just keep breathing. At some point in time, you will run into something in your life that is extremely difficult, and you will need to rely on God's help to overcome that difficult time. The theme verse here is Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And it leads to verse 37. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. This is where we lead most of our lives. This is the biggest, the biggest piece of the pie. Most of you in this room, probably right now for you personally, are in some sort of phase two type time. Now, Phase one hasn't ended. God still loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you're probably living with a theme mostly of, I've got problems every day. And I could name them alphabetically or chronologically, you know, however you want to do it. Uh, But I've got problems every day, and I am praying, and I need God's help to help me overcome those problems on a daily basis. This is normal, everyday life for us. Bethany's dad and her family are very much characterized by phase two, right? And he calls you, and he says, we need prayer. We need God to fix this. We need God to work a miracle in her life. We need God to heal her and make her better, the treatments to be successful. So phase one is about plans. Phase two is about help. The problem comes with phase three because we know how to talk to people in phase one. We're excited for them. They've got a future and a hope. You know, when you're talking with that that newly about to graduate high school senior or someone who's starting a new business or that young couple that's getting married, we know how to talk with them. We're excited for them. God's got great plans for you. We know how to talk with people in phase two, right? You encourage them. You can do this. You're gonna make it through. God's got this. He's gonna help you. And we pray for them. We put, these are the people. Phase two people are, are populating our prayer list, right? These are the people we pray for. We know how to talk with people in phase one and phase two. But how do we talk with somebody once things have already fallen apart? You know, After the marriage has dissolved, when we're visiting at the hospital, when that person's been turned over to hospice care and they're no longer trying to solve the problem but just make them comfortable. When we visit a funeral, the first time we see that person after the funeral's already occurred, and we know they're hurting and they're grieving still. What do we say then? This doesn't say job. It says Job. <laughs> I realized that after I put this up last, it like, just says, this is your job. You know, we're not going to talk about your job. Um, but, no, I don't think that applies at all, really. So um, we're going to talk about Job. So, if you know just a little of the story of Job, we're not going to go through the whole thing, of course, but he experienced um, probably worse pain and suffering, hopefully, than anybody in this room has experienced. Almost his entire family died in one day. He lost all of his business, all of his wealth. Um, Eventually, his own health was impacted to where he himself was on the point of death. Um, Sometimes we talk about Job-like suffering. Um, I certainly hope that no one's all the way to uh, Job's type of suffering. So when we think about the book of Job, if you've heard anybody talk about it or you've read it yourself, one of our main thoughts that we think when we talk about Job in in the American church is we love to be very critical of Job's friends, right? We love to say, man, they they goofed it up. They had all these bad things to say, and then God had to rebuke them and basically tell them to quiet down, you know, that sort of thing. That's all true. But we miss this little tiny part before they it up. Um, And there's seven days in there where they got it right in a way that many of us could probably learn quite a bit from. So let's look at this passage together. Job chapter 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, excellent names. If anybody's expecting a child in this room, I highly recommend Zophar. That would be awesome. Zophar Miller or something like that. That would sound really good. Um, When they heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job, they set out from their home, so they left where they were. They met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads, a symbol of grief in that time. Then they sat down on the ground With him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They were silent for seven days. We don't do silence very well anymore. We have a lot of noise in our lives these days, right? And if you've been in a conversation with someone who is comfortable with silence, sometimes you want to avoid that person in the future, right? If you're talking with them and they... It gets a little uncomfortable. After about the five-second mark, right? It starts to get a little uncomfortable. It's just not something that we do very well anymore. Why could they do that in that moment? Well, the scripture tells us very plainly the reason that they had nothing to say for seven days and seven nights as they sat on the ground was was because they saw how great his suffering was. They did the thing I didn't do for Gladys, right? I did not see how great her suffering was until I walked in the room and I saw the tears coming down her face. So we learn how to care from Job's friends here. First of all, they sat down. That may sound like a minor thing, but there's been studies proven that a person who's in the hospital experiences your visit differently, whether you're standing next to their bed where they're laying down, or you sit down and you look at them in the eyes from that seat. So, I kind of doubt that they had read those studies in the, uh, and Job's friend Zophar probably hadn't read, you know, PubMed online or something like that to be able to see that study. But they intuitively knew, our friend's having a hard time. We're not going to go and stand over Job while he sits. They intuitively knew to sit down with him. Next, they wept out loud. Men were about to be uncomfortable. <laughs> Think about Job. And all the wealth he had and all the influence he had. He had all these businesses, servants, um, accumulated so much. He was a man of influence, a man of resource. What we would look at him like a CEO or somebody in an executive role today. He had all this influence and all this access. I would guess that if Job's like our executives that are around today, probably some of his circle of friends were similar people, people who had resources. You notice how these men are named and where they're from and that sort of thing, probably because they were like Job. They were men with authority, men with resources, men with power, men with money. And yet they put everything on hold. They go, and then what do they do after they sit down? They cry out loud. My fellow men in the room, we don't do this real well. We try to stifle our cries, right? We try to push it back down. And for a long time, whether I was in a hospital room or talking with a friend or whether I was on stage talking about a touching story, if I would ever start to have my voice crack and I would start to have tears, I would regularly do what? Apologize. About eight months ago, I made a decision. As a man, I'm sending the wrong message when I apologize, when I cry. What message am I sending? It would be preferable if men never cried, right? It would be better if I never cried. And so I've stopped apologizing, and when my voice cracks And when I start to have some tears, I don't apologize anymore. These men of influence, men probably of more influence than most of us will, will know in our lives, walk into this man of influence who is suffering. They sit down together and they shed real tears. They follow the example of Jesus, right? When Jesus walks into the area where Lazarus has died and everyone's crying, Jesus weeps even though he knows what he's about to do. And it says, they heard. Now, it says that they were silent for seven days and seven nights, meaning these three friends. It does not say that Job was silent for those seven days and seven nights, because if Job's anything like the rest of us, I guarantee he had a few things to say during that time, right? At the very least, he's telling them the story of how he learned that his daughter had died, how he learned that his other children had died, how he learned that um, all of his possessions had been stolen and taken and destroyed. At the very least, he's telling that story, and sometimes that's just what we need, right? We need someone to be quiet long enough for us to say, well, the first time I went to chemo, I was scared to death. The first time I heard that diagnosis, the first time I had to call that office, and when it said cancer in the name of that office, that scared me. Sometimes we just need to be quiet long enough to listen and hear people tell that story. So during that time, they heard And then they sympathize. They put themselves in Job's shoes. They tried to imagine, what would this feel like if I was you? Now, it doesn't mean they can fully understand, but they at least tried to sympathize with what was going on. Now, this is simple to do, and we're going to talk about how any of us can do it, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. But Job's friends do give us a model for how we care for the sick, dying, and grieving. And I can sum it up in three uh, phrases for you. Sit down, shut up, and cry. If we can do this in people's lives who are hurting, we will help them. We can get everything else wrong, but if we will show up, sit down, shut up, and sympathize with them to the point where we're willing to shed tears along with them, we will help them. So phase three, let's talk about phase three directly. So phase three begins when we, when we realize we're not necessarily going to overcome whatever this difficulty is. So if you're at that funeral, the person has died. So what we were praying for, that they would not die, hasn't, hasn't happened, so we're not focusing on God's help to overcome any longer. Now we're in a different space. We're in phase three. In phase three, the theme is God will help you to find meaning in suffering. Now, hear me clearly. I do not mean that God will explain why this happened to you. Only God knows why bad things happen, and he does not usually tell us the answers to those questions, right? Many of you have been in that place. You want God to explain, why did this person die? Why did this bad thing happen? Um, And God very rarely explains those things. I'm not sure I'm familiar with a single time (laughs) that God has adequately explained to somebody why they went through something so difficult. But God can help us to find meaning and to find purpose in small things in the middle of that suffering. So the theme is no longer plans or help. Now the theme is meaning. I wanna read the theme verse to you And then I'm going to ask you to do that difficult thing that I mentioned was coming later. The theme verse is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now, I hope that just on the face of it, you can see how this theme verse kind of fits with this phase three that we're talking about. But I want to make sure that um, you can really picture it. And so I'm going to ask you to do something difficult, okay? For those of you in the room who have ever been in a room or in a place with another person at the moment of death, you were there when they took their last breath. If you would, if that's you... And, and we can't plan this, right? There's been times I've planned to be there when somebody died and I missed it. There's been other times I did not plan to be in the room when that person died and I was there. So we can't plan it ahead of time, but there's something about ending up in that situation. So if that's you, if you've been in a room when someone has died, I would ask you just to stand up. Just to stand up for me. Wow, wow. I don't think I was emotionally prepared for how many of you would stand up. Um, for you who have been in those moments, whether someone was maybe it was the closest person on the face of the planet to you, or maybe it was someone that you didn't know as well, when you've been in that moment, you know that everything changes. that experience and being in, in that place um, does something to your mind and your heart, your soul, your spirit that Um, can't be explained. And so if you're next to somebody who's standing and you're sitting, if you'd reach out and put a hand on them, grab their hand, put your hand on their back. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this verse one more time. If you're standing, you can also put your hand on somebody who's standing. That's okay, too. It doesn't require to be seated. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to look at this verse one more time, and I want those of you who've been in that place to just sort of gently... Not in, a, not in a way that's going to be hurtful to you, but to gently recall that time when you were in that place. As we look at this verse one more time God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. When you're standing in that space, as tragic and possibly traumatic as what you're experiencing when that person dies, sometimes there is something rather beautiful about the experience. And God has made something beautiful out of that. There's also a very real experience of being extremely here right now. It's like all the other time sort of washes away, right? And you're just here and you have no concept of whether minutes or hours or days have gone by while you're in that room with that person. There's also an experience of being connected, though, to the past. And feeling as though there's something about what you're experiencing right now is connected both to the past and the future. And you have an experience, as we sang about this morning, there's sometimes there's an experience of a thinning or even a breaking open of the veil between us and the other world that we know is with us all the time, but we don't experience all the time. And sometimes we experience it in the most dynamic way in those moments of death. And so we experience a very much a hereness, but also a connectedness to all of eternity. And then we can all say amen to the last part, we don't have any clue, really, what God's doing from beginning to end. We have no fathom. How does this fit in with everything else? We don't know. How does this fit in with what happened yesterday, what will happen tomorrow, my heart, my mind, my experience? We don't know. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Thank you for doing that. You can have a seat. So Bethany, like many people, um, had her roller coaster continue. She had surgery and radiation, um, followed by chemotherapy. And at the end of all that, as a young person who was otherwise healthy, she was said to be in remission, and everyone rejoiced. Sometime later, though, your phone rang again, and it was Bethany's dad again. And Bethany's dad said um, that the cancer had returned. And a second round of treatment was started right away for Bethany. And at the end of that round, the doctors were a little bit less optimistic than they had been before. Through all of this time, uh, most of your interactions with Bethany had been at the hospital or with other people or over the phone or talking with her dad. And then there's a moment where you get to talk with Bethany alone. Just the two of you. And something has changed about the conversation. She's maybe in a little different place than she had been previously. You still think of her in your mind as phase one. She's a young person. God loves her, has wonderful plans for her life and is working those plans out. In your mind, you can see her dad and the rest of the family that's around her that's been praying for her and supporting her and bringing her meals and everything else. And you can see they're in that phase too. Like, how are we gonna help her get through this and overcome this difficulty? But Bethany herself... And she's the one that matters the most in this situation, right? Bethany herself has landed in phase three. And she says something to you as the two of you are alone for which you are not prepared. But you can tell she has been preparing to say this to someone who who she feels is safe to have this conversation with. And she says, I know how this is going to end. I can watch the looks on the face of the doctors. I'm not an idiot. I can tell how I'm feeling inside of my body. I can tell where this is headed. I'm a smart woman, and I know that I am not going to make it. I know my kids are going to lose their mom before any of them reach the I know my husband will be a widower before he reaches middle age. And then you listen to all this. You do exactly that crazy thing that we said you could do, and you don't stifle your tears, and you cry with her. And once all that's over, you don't just try to cheerleader and say, no, 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 let's, let's one more round of treatment, um, let's, let's go do one more second opinion. Instead, you just swallow hard and you say, well, what do you want to do? What's important to you now? You still have important goals in life. You have things that you want to do. You have things that are important to you. You've got at least a little bit of time left. Now what's important? Maybe, maybe your goal isn't to overcome and to, to um, get past all of this. Now what's important? And you can tell maybe she's prepared for this part of the conversation as well, even though you were not prepared. And she gives you just a little bit of a smile. And she says, you know, I've always liked to write. What I really think I'm supposed to do now is to start writing letters to the people I care about. If I do that, can I give them to you and you hold on to them until I die? You've waded into phase three with Bethany. You've let her um, have different priorities than just getting better physically, uh, but to have a meaningful experience of however much time she has left. You've loosened your grip on trying to help and and overcoming, and you've reached out with her for meaning. When people tell you they're going to die, they are usually right. Bethany was right, and seven weeks later, at home, on hospice care, as Bethany laid in her bed with Brad next to her, um, washing her with his, with his tears, she died. You, at home, have a stack of envelopes, handwritten letters, Bethany's beautiful handwriting, and names, a different name written on the front of each envelope. And so when you arrive at the funeral, you have this stack of envelopes with these names on the front. You give one to Brad, one to Haley, who's a freshman now, one to Micah. And the one for Emma will be saved until she's a little older and can read it. There's a letter on the bottom of the stack of envelopes. I've asked Audrey to, (laughs) you're already crying, that's not good. I've asked her to come up and to um, read Bethany's letter, one that she saved um, for you to read, and she's given you strict instructions um, not to read this until the day of her funeral. And so after you've handed those uh, envelopes out, you step up, blot your tears. <laughs>
2: I, mean, I this during the past few years. I came to a point after my second round of treatment where I could see hand-writing on the wall. I was growing weaker, and the looks on the faces of my doctors began to tell me that it was unlikely I was going to recover long-term. But I looked into the faces of my children. I felt so sad. When I wasn't sad, I
1: those holy moments come about when we're willing to step into a difficult situation. When we're willing to listen, to go, to sympathize, to shed some tears, and to resist the primary American urge to fix and fiddle and control. But when we allow something beautiful to be made, remember what we said at the beginning. Jesus talked about his death often. He prepared for it. He knew it was coming. You might say, well, he was unique. He was unique, but not that unique. We're all facing that that fate at some point in time. And so he talked about it, and people tried to quiet him down. Do you remember Jesus' response to Peter? Peter when he said, this is what's going to happen, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the leaders. And what did Peter say? May it never be so. And how did Jesus re- reply? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus knew we need to have these hard conversations. We need to talk about facing our mortality. And when we do, beautiful things open up. You have an opportunity. You have an opportunity in the lives of people who are struggling like this because very few people will do the work that we just talked about doing with Bethany. Very few people will show up, sit down, and be quiet. They will have doctor after nurse after friend after family member come through and talk, 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 talk about fixing the situation. And if you walk in, our chaplains experience this every day in the hospital. When our chaplain walks in and just sits down and says, I know a little bit about your physical prognosis, but tell me, how are you doing. It's as simple as that. It doesn't take a degree. You don't have to read a book. You don't have to be an ordained minister. You don't have to have a bunch of experience. It's as simple as going in, sitting down, and saying, what's important to you now? How are you doing? How's your spiritual side of everything that you're going through? I know your body's going through a lot. How about your spirit? Some of you right now are feeling a tug to go to somebody. And to open up that door for them and to allow them to talk about where they're really at. Giving them permission to say, this is how I need to find meaning. This is how I need to, I can't just prioritize my health. I've got to prioritize other things in my life too, my relationships, my goals, my aspirations for the future. Some of you are pulling a tug right now or feeling that tug right now of someone in your life that you're to be Bill Dad for. And don't worry, you don't have to take the name Bill Dad on just to go do it. I know it's not something anybody's looking for. So if you're feeling that tug, I just encourage you to go and then to be open-handed with what's going to come from that point on. So let's pray, and we'll close with a very appropriate song today. God, help us to be these people. Help us to be those friends, those adults, those teenagers, those moms, those grandpas who will go into that room and not just say, tell me all of your list of diagnoses and how you're going to get better, but that person that goes in and says, how are you really doing? That sits, that goes, that sits down and sympathizes and listens and hears. Help us to be quiet long enough to let God do God's work. As we are quiet when a physician is explaining to us uh, things that we need to hear, help us to be quiet when your spirit is instructing us in the way we need to go when people are facing these most difficult times. I pray for each person in this room that whether that that tug is coming today and there's somebody in their life they need to go and be that person, be that Zophar or Bildad for, uh, whether that's today or whether that's uh, 10 years from now, that they will be led by your Spirit to go, to sit down, to sympathize, and to love that person enough to see what's important to them and how the Spirit is at work in their hearts and their minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.